Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in Jim Moore now. He's head of investment solutions at PIMCO, and a great pleasure to have you here in the studio with us this morning. Thank you let for me, having me. It's been a while. It has been. Thank, yeah. let, let me start with this. Uh, stop. It's sorry. been a while, been a... and you're arguably <laughs> the most important person at PIMCO, because 81% of our listeners can't retire. That's, that's that's it. David, I don't mean to interrupt, <laughs> but let me make clear. A, it's been a while, and you're the most important person at PIMCO. There you go. go. And we're going to get into that in just a moment, but let, let me start where we were where we were with uh, Matt Miller here just a moment ago, and, and if not talking about that, uh, the effects of that attack in specific, just the, the general sense of uncertainty that this uh, leads to or continues here, that, that we have these three attacks yesterday. There's a sense of instability and, 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 and a fractious uh, Europe at this point. What does this do to your outlook, uh, the events that we saw yesterday? You know, we, you know, our view was was we really expected to see more volatility in markets going forward post-election, and, and I think this plays into it. Uh, the geopolitical risk in, in the system is very large. Uh, how various uh, governments react to it, how populists react to it, and um, what it does for growth, what it does for markets uh, will unfold over the next, uh, next few years. You look at market reaction, you also wonder if there's just something harder to quantify there uh, when you look at just optimism, investor optimism, something like that. When you have when you have events like this, maybe an effect that's harder uh, to measure just based on market reaction. Sure. I mean, I, I think a lot of this is is yet to be determined in terms of where it goes. But, uh, you know, we're coming off an era where with uh, the Fed being very accommodative, really pulling forward returns over time, which, you know, creates uh, some potential issues going forward over the longer term for retirees and their ability to save for retirement, as, as Tom indicated. Mm-hmm. 83 years old, and then 85 years old is our actual assumption, our our life expectancy, Mm -hmm. rather, at age 65. Nobody's ready. Let's get to the basics. What's your new assumption of actuarial return, That, that number that we can use to model out your world of retirement? Well, if you look at where the the ag is now, you're taking about a yield of a little under two and a half percent for for bonds. In our view, on stocks is maybe at two two and a half percent above that. So if you look at a sixty forty portfolio, you're somewhere under four percent, and that really creates a long term problem when you've mm-hmm. got uh, systems that were designed in the '70s and '80s in an era where eight percent returns were achievable. Eight percent returns were achievable, and yet I'm looking at a great bull market in another double-digit year, eleven percent for equities. Am I running on fumes, actuarial? I mean, how do you balance the gloom of the numbers you just gave us with the reality of return many people are seeing? Well, you know, Tom, I, th- I think, you know, the reality is that people are going to have to live, save longer as they live longer. If you look at the, the demographic data, life expectancy goes up about 1.5, 1.6 years for every decade. When we last revisited Social Security normal retirement age in 1983, so 33 years ago, 
Um, you know, the life expectancy has gone up about five years since then. So, you know, fundamentally, it's time to, to rethink about system design. And I'd call on the new administration to think about entitlement reform as a very important piece of the retirement puzzle. You say save longer as we, as we live longer. Put that into the context of the, the central banking news that you mentioned here a few, few moments mm-hmm. ago. There has been a difficulty or a, a, a lack of willingness or ability to save here in, in, in recent years. How are people grappling with that need to save more? Well, you know, they have they have been saving more. If you yeah. look at the, the savings data, it has gone up, which is which is in, in some sense a little bit counterintuitive considering we're a third of the way through the baby boomer hitting what we would normally think of as retirement years. So we still have another decade of the baby boom retiring. Yet if you look at labor force participation for those over fifty five, it's creeping up. And um, what's really going to happen is you're going to have people pushing out retirement a year, maybe two years, in, in order to make that equation balance. But is it the issue? We've got to run the break here and come back. Not only are you going to push out retirement a year or two, I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. But really what we're going to do is shift to part-time retirees Absolutely. out forever. I mean, I got a casket out back here. <laughs> but Gura, I mean, Gura wants me. he wants me part-time right now. But, I mean, oh, it, is it going to be part-time retirement America? I, I think that that's that's right. You're going to see more people taking on part-time work, and what our normal notions of employment and full employment mm-hmm. really mean are going to change. You know, I, I get in debates with Joaquin Fowles, our economists and economists on the street, thinking about have we reached full employment? But look at the spread between the U6 and the U3, yeah. and it's still as stubbornly well, high. Well, Jim Moore with us with PIMCO, uh, always good g- discussion on retirement. When you're in PIMCO and you go to all your meetings and you go to Washington and that, is there any mood of our worthy politicians to further incentivize our ability to sock money away? I haven't seen. I mean, the debates were deficient of this. Isn't that like priority one in your world? Provide in, incentives? Yeah, in, in my world, it is. I, th- I think the issue is we drastically need to increase savings rates in this country if people are expecting to retire at uh, historical norms for retirement. And, um, you know, the government's caught between a rock and a hard place in terms of the need for some amount of control over budgets and uh, okay, people's desire to say. Help me here with this. I tuck away more money mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't cheat. I don't do anything irresponsible. The government gets paid eventually, right? Eventually. Okay. Well, then what's the debate? <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if I borrow 20 bucks from David Gura to buy a martini... He may not get paid back. The government's going to get paid, right? Yeah, as economists would say, it's the rate of time preference. And I think one of the things you see in Washington is huge debates about the rate of time preference in terms of what public policy should be. If, if people are talking infrastructure, increasing debts to, to fund growth, that's indicating you know, effectively a higher discount rate than those folks who are basically worried about you know, running much tighter uh, fiscal standards than we've, than we've seen or, or – um, that may be necessary. There is, again, talk of entitlement reform. Is it anything more than lip service, you think? Are there any indications to you that we could have a Congress that uh, now with majority Republican majority in both houses uh, and uh, a Republican president, we could get some movement on this? You know, a, a friend of mine, in response to something I wrote a few years ago about Social Security, it had a one-line quip in response, it, which was, that which gets deferred gets compounded. Yeah. And 
And you know, I, I think that is 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 a is a large problem in in the process. If you think about the incentives of those people in Washington who are in the debate, they have a two-year window, a four-year window, or a six-year window. When you're looking at problems, they're going to manifest themselves over decades. Uh, you know, people quote the trustees' report in saying that we essentially run out of money around 2033, but it's actually worse than that because that money isn't segregated. And the point where outflows exceed inflows is really going to happen to the, towards the back end of this incoming administration. What's the, the biggest concern for pension funds that you hear about? What are they most worried about? Uh, it depends. If you're if you're talking corporate pension plans who've been in a regime of having to really mark to market for the last decade, they're hoping interest rates go up to close that 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 deficit. If you're talking public plans, which by and large use a actual discount rate of seven and a half or eight percent, their crux and the difficult problem they have is trying to get a seven and a half to eight percent um, return. And that, I think, is a very, very large problem, which is going to manifest itself more in the next decade in terms of the, the pressure it puts on uh, public sector yeah. finance. Is a dividend growth equity a yield equivalent? I, I think a growth equity ha has some yield component um, to it. The, the, the issue is understanding what drives the volatility. I mean, um, over the long run, you know, solid dividends, solid growth in the final companies is a source of return and a source of income. However, um, there's nothing bounding it to uh, keep volatility in check. And the other thing when you think about a, a pension plan with uh, a demographic wave running through it is you have an increasing draw on that plan. And so your ability to tolerate downdrafts mm -hmm. becomes more and more limited. If target, the whole target concept, the marketed idea of target portfolios, mm -hmm. is that something you can theoretically get behind or are they a marketing gimmick? No, I, I think there, there's value to it. I, I think the, the crux of the difficulty is understanding the design. Are you designing on the 401k side? You know, some sort of accumulation vehicle, or are you actually thinking about a vehicle that, that transfers to a position to limit risk sufficiently uh, to position a retiree to actually have meaningful mm -hmm. drawdown without uh, huge downdraft risk? Fascinating. We could, I could go, you got to show up more often. <laughs> I, I will. I mean, you know, please, Jim Moore with PIMCO on uh, our lack of retirement. I mean, David, I'm going to be sitting here forever. There you go. That's I good mean, news for listeners for, and for me. Oh, David Gurr is back. <laughs> Scarlett Fu was with us yesterday. How was she? She, she was a good Peerless. audition. It's a very, very successful audition. We've done that before. <laughs> David Gurra, we think, and Tom Keene with you worldwide. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Uh, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest? There you go. Uh, Bob Hormatz joins us now in the studio. He is vice chair of, of Kissinger Associates. Uh, great to have you here on the heels of a, a trip to China. And maybe we can uh, return to what Michael Barr was talking about a few moments ago. That is the return of that underwater uh, drone, the Chinese returning it to, to the U.S. What do you make of the incident itself? The Chinese saying this has been greatly uh, overblown. Uh, it did take on some import here over these last few days. I think the Chinese have been very wise in trying to lower tensions with the United States, particularly during this transition period. They don't want any big confrontational issues uh, while the Trump team is assembling 
uh, its secretaries and its national security advisors and others. And I think that's probably right. They want to wait and see what Trump's policies are. They don't want to give them any pretext for taking a very tough line against China, at least rhetorically at this point. It's not an easy decision for China because there is strong <clears throat> nationalistic pressure in China to take tough action, but I think the wisdom yeah. of Chinese authorities is prevailing and mm. they did the right thing. How many people told Bob Hormance to get or not get a Twitter account? <laughs> How many people were on the table <laughs> when Hormance considered entering the modern age from the quill? <laughs> Well, I started a couple of years ago. It's uh, it's been very interesting. All the twitters you get, you get a very good reaction from this show. Really? Yes. From <laughs> oh, this from show, this show. Continue. From this show, continuously good reactions and very good comments. So I always okay. get a, a lot of twitters when I. And I love how show. you do real Bob Hormats. We should tell China that we don't want the drone they stole back. Hyphen, let them keep it. Exclamation point. They didn't teach this at Tufts, did they? No, I don't know where that came from. That came from the president-elect of the United well, States. I, 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 don't, I know who said it, but I don't understand where the thought came from. It doesn't, didn't seem Please to make Please explain to our apolitical audience the ramifications of the word stole or the word let them keep it. Well, I would say that it would be very wise for President-elect Trump to say nothing about China at this point, he ought to form his team of advisors, his cabinet, and they ought to develop a strategy vis-a-vis China that makes sense in the long term. We've got to deal with the Chinese. We may not like everything they do or say, but China is a major power, and you simply cannot deal with them yeah. through Twitter. It, to me, it is demeaning. If they were to do the same thing to us, would be very unhappy for us to treat China right. in the same way with Twitters I, back and forth makes I no sense I want to get this in on China. David, you can have the whole next block. Eswar <laughs> Prasad at Cornell is pretty good. Eswar yes. Prasad wrote a scathing piece in Project Syndicate on China and the president-elect over the weekend. You were just in China. How do they respond in your conversations to the president-elect? Well, they're very puzzled at what his real policies are going to be. They've made a very clear point of saying they're not going to overreact at the moment. On the other hand, they see what he said and heard what he said during the campaign. He was going to find them a currency manipulator. He was going to go after them on a variety of trade issues, anti-dumping cases, countervailing duty cases, uh, negative views on Chinese investment. Uh, there are issues with China, to be sure, but the way of, to deal with the Chinese is not to confront them overtly, particularly not through Twitter. It's to have serious conversations. He ought to wait, have his experts meet with the Chinese experts. If he has views, if he has concerns, if he has complaints, put them to the Chinese quietly, clearly, but quietly and okay. not confrontationally, and think certainly I've ever, not publicly. Bob, I don't think I've ever seen you wound up like this. You should tweet out today. <laughs> Change your handle to the real Bob Hormats. A few moments ago, you were talking about uh, what amounts to a good relationship between China and the U.S. It doesn't take place on, on Twitter. When you look at the team that Donald Trump has begun to assemble here with the governor of Iowa, Terry Branstad, as the ambassador, what sense are you getting about policy from that? In other words, we had the rhetoric on the campaign trail. Uh, from that, we move to policy. Are we getting a clearer sense of the shape that that is going to take? Not really. I think Terry Branstad is a good pick for ambassador. He knows Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping, quite well. He knows China well. 
the new Secretary of State, Tillerson, I'm sure knows China well, but you really have to make policy toward China at the top. You need to have a strategy. It can't just be ad hoc individual decisions. And he needs to have a team of China experts. I don't know who they are if he has them. They need to sit down and spend some time thinking about not just what they say on a given day, but the implications of what they say over a couple of year period and, and what the long term relationship is. If they want to take a tough view on a, on a set of issues, they ought to have a clear way of working out a solution with the Chinese. Simply confronting the Chinese is not going to get anywhere because the Chinese have their own nationalistic pressures and they will hit back. It's not Burundi. Mm. This is China. This is the Middle Kingdom. This is a big country. We're going to have to work with them because virtually nothing is going to happen internationally for the good, certainly, unless the United States finds a way of working with China in a constructive fashion. Confrontation is not an answer to anything. It'd be disruptive financially and disruptive politically and from a security point of view. How hard is it to maintain these two focuses, one on national security, the other on uh, economics for a government? Well, we've been able to do it reasonably well. The economic part of the relationship with China has evolved. I think China is somewhat more nationalistic economically, as are we. So we're going to have to figure out a way of, of working with them. By pulling out of TPP, we give China a lot of latitude to draw up the rules of trade, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region. They really don't think, and a lot of our allies now don't think, we have very much staying power in the region. From a political and national security point of view, we've had closer mil, what they call mill-mill relations, military-to-military -military relations. There are ways of working with the Chinese right. on South China Sea and other things, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of meetings at various levels over a period of time, not one-shot statements by yeah. the President of the United States, particularly yeah. by Twitter. Uh, you keep going back to that, Ambassador Hormatz. Your wonderful book, The Price of Liberty, the first sentence, the final chapter. I love this. Henry Kissinger has written that, quote, America's journey through international politics has been a triumph of faith over experience. What is Donald Trump's faith? Well, I don't know at this point. He, he seems to think that he can take very tough lines against the Chinese and the Chinese will somehow do what he asks yeah, them or wants them to do. Isn't that the same for Putin? You know, fill in well, the yes, yes, Everything. yes. Yeah. But he has a, it's seeming a, a much different view of Putin than he does of President Xi Jinping. Um, he's, he's talked okay. very negatively about China, very positively about so Russia. So it's a bluster of, say, Theodore Roosevelt, but I'm not comparing him to President Roosevelt. But the, the, your study of the diplomacy of bluster, mm -hmm. which I think we can all agree, including Trump supporters, there's a lot of that here. How does that play in the modern age? It doesn't play very well. I mean, if you want to be tough, then, as, as Trump clearly does, then there is room for being tough. But you need to have a strategy behind it, and you need to have some kind of dialogue with the Chinese to assert your view and come up with the kind of answers that you want. And it cannot be they do everything we ask them to do. They're not in that mode anymore. They're not a weak country. They have their own national interests. We have to figure out some mm -hmm. way of, of achieving our goals 
but the Chinese have to get something out of the deal. It's not going to be a one-sided thing. And he's got to think these things through before he, he does them because the consequences of a confrontation with China between the U.S. and China, but also for a lot of the other friends and allies in the region, that would be catastrophic. They don't want to be in the middle of a confrontation between Beijing and, and uh, Washington. We've we've seen the establishment of a, a regular dialogue between China and the U.S., the strategic economic dialogue happening, I think, every two years. Every, every year. Uh, every year now, but yeah. changing location every every right. every year. Um, if that disappears, what is the forum here for, for conversations between these, these two governments? Well, we still presumably would have summit meetings between our two presidents periodically. We have uh, APEC meetings. China and the U.S. are both members of APEC. There are other groups. Uh, the SNED, Strategic Economic Dialogue that you mentioned, is a very useful vehicle. I think there are ways of improving it. I used to go to them on a regular basis. Mm. They're useful because there are a multitude of issues between the United States and China. We've made progress on environmental issues. As I say, on mill-mill issues, military-to-military issues, there actually has been some progress. There are other issues that we still need to make progress on, intellectual property, uh, protection, uh, trade secrets protection, a number of other things, and there are a number of geopolitical issues. They're going to be. There are rising power, traditionally rising powers and existing powers have issues that need to be resolved. So we're going to have to get to it in a serious way. And and, and by say, when I say serious, I mean the leaders are going to have to sit down and try to work these things out. And Trump's going to have to understand the Chinese a lot more than he does mm. and understand they have nationalistic pressures too. They may not be a democracy, but they have very strong public opinion and they have very strong national interests, as do we. The question is how do we work out our national interests in a constructive way? In these last few minutes we have here, let's turn to Europe. Uh, the events we saw yesterday on the heels of the referendum in Italy, uh, on the heels of the, the, the referendum in the United Kingdom. Uh, let's look ahead to 2017 and, and your sense of how that fractiousness continues, how it begins to repair itself. What do you, what do you see happening? These referenda, the, the Renzi referendum on restructuring the Italian Senate and, and Brexit, illustrate that in Europe they have these same sorts of nationalistic pressures, anti-international pressures, uh, economic xenophobia, anti-immigration pressures that a number of other countries do, including the United States. I think what's troublesome about Europe is the whole vision, the whole what they call European project, started out as a political uh, objective to pull Europe together politically and then economically. It's become much more technical now, and I think it has to be restored in a way that the average yeah. European citizen understands it and benefits from it. It's gotten too technical. It's gotten away from the kind of popular support that it needs to mm -hmm. sustain itself. Ambassador, thank you so much. Bob Hormitz, very generous of your time uh, this morning. He's with Kissinger Associates and, of course, is a former undersecretary of state for uh, the president, President Obama. Maybe it's the last time we're going to say that. We're really getting, oh, no, that we're getting into January. There you go. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more 
at findyourindependentadvisor.com. John Vale with us with Nico as we look at uh, Japan, but much more at the Trump reflation. We've had a number of interviews where we go, okay, the 10-year yields at 2.57%. Where does it behaviorally change? And it may be 3%, it may be 2.9, it may be 3 per 3. I can't get a handle on that for Japan. Negative rates out to seven years. The 10-year yield is 0.071. I think that's 0.1% rounded up. Is there a tip point where yields go up, where things change in Japan due to the Trump reflation? Or are, are yields so low and distorted, you can't even say that? Well, they are distorted. They're controlled. It's called yield curve control for a reason. The Bank of Japan owns a great majority of these securities and can sort of control what the price is. Um, and they're controlling it right now at a little bit below, yeah, 0.1%. And um, they don't have to buy too many securities right now to keep it there because uh, people have had pretty low expectations for inflation going forward. But with this Trump reflation, there's definitely a, a change in the mood there. The press conference last night for Kuroda after the Bank of Japan meeting uh, did indicate that uh, he's uh, – tolerating perhaps thoughts of increasing the the target in the coming months. And we just had our quarterly meeting for our Global Investment Committee yesterday, and we were very non-consensus in predicting a 20 basis point hike in that target uh, in the second quarter and another 20 basis points in the fourth quarter. Mm. Uh, David Gurr, for my 100th birthday, that 40-year bond you bought me in Japan. Yes, happy birthday. Since Mr. Trump was elected, (laughs) it's on sale. It's gone from 94 down to 88, even with all the distortions there. There is price erosion in Japan. You just got to go out a lifetime to see it. How much has, has the landscape changed for Japan since the, the election that we had here on, on the 8th of, of November? Has, has the uh, economic landscape changed markedly as a result, uh, a result of that election? Well, they were very worried before, and they really were not close to Trump. And it was looking kind of dicey for them for a while. But the weakness of the yen and Abe's uh, very proactive stance in, in flying here to meet him has really changed the mood a lot. And a lot of people are thinking that Trump is actually good for Japan, not only for security in that, he, you know, of course, he's not going to uh, – and his, and his generals and his cabinet are not going to give up the Japan Security Alliance. Um, and, yes, uh, the weak yen has just really been a tremendous help to sentiment in Japan. So uh, – it's, it's looking good for Japan right now. Remind us what, what came out of that, that period of introspection when the, the Bank of Japan was going to uh, take stock of what they'd done, reevaluate policy. What changed uh, as a result of that? Well, um, they've been very, very worried, as have all central banks, about some sort of taper tantrum. And they're also worried about uh, what happens when they start to taper their ETF purchases. Mm. I know Tom has not been a big fan of the ETF purchases. <laughs> it's, it's a big... Uh, it's very unorthodox policy, but we actually in our meeting yesterday expected uh, uh, the BOJ to uh, taper its e- ETF purchases in the second quarter. 
as well. And that's very non-consensus. But we're very positive on the stock market. We expect it to be up, you know, 6 or 7% by next June. And the Bank of Japan just doesn't need to be buying ETFs. I mean, originally it was buying ETFs to increase risk appetite and to show confidence in the economy. And they just won't need to do that. So there might be a, big, a bit of a hiccup as that gets priced into the market. But we, we think that, yeah, the market can go up despite this tapering. Help us understand the rationale behind what is a, sort of an outsider call at this point. Again, you mentioned uh, looking at yield curve targeting and, 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 and some changes to that here in the next few quarters. What's led you to, to make that forecast? What's well, just optimism. Basically, on the economy, we think the economy is going to do better than consensus. And that consensus is actually moving up as we speak. Uh, we think uh, with the weaker yen and higher oil prices that the CPI will be uh, definitely going up, uh, not maybe to 2% uh, very soon, but maybe by the end of the year it could be approaching that. And the Bank of Japan is just uh, probably going to be a bit of uh, under pressure, too, from the U.S. Treasury and other countries about not let, letting the yen get too weak. We still think it's going to go to 123 by June. Um, but And even the Abe administration doesn't want the yen too weak. I mean, for instance... One reason why they sort of cooled off on their really super aggressive policy was that the yen was so weak that uh, voters were getting unhappy with food price inflation. Mm. And so, yes, it all makes sense that they should start to calm down a bit. There's a range. I mean, what you said 123. Just very quickly, is 150 feasible? Is that even feasible in your realm? If the two peaks twenty years ago, if the Fed keeps raising rates, uh, you know, quarterly going forward, and the Bank of Japan is super aggressive in its policy, yes, it's possible. And I don't think anybody wants that to happen. To be honest, even Japan, I don't think that. So they should. They should probably uh, have to. My pleasure now to bring in Michael Darda, Chief Economist and Market Strategist of MKM Holdings, joining us now. Michael, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on. Let's start with the news of the day. As Tom was mentioning just a few moments ago, we have seen uh, the markets doing remarkably well, a bit of resilience here in light of what we saw uh, yesterday across uh, Europe. What do you make of that? I use the word inured, and that's perhaps uh, not the word I should have used. Uh, that implies that we're sort of used to it, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to say that we have become used to attacks like the ones we saw yesterday. But what, what do you think explains the resilience we've seen today? Well, it's always hard to <clears throat> to you know to know what uh, is driving the market over you know a period of hours or or days. But I think in general, at least since the the U.S. Uh, election result, there is optimism in, in the U.S. that <clears throat> policies could change in a pro-growth manner. Probably mainly due to deregulation and maybe secondarily to you know corporate tax reform, and so the dollar's been rallying. Uh, growth expectations have been rising. Bu- business confidence has been rising. Um, in Japan and the euro area are getting you know weaker currencies as a as a consequence, and those markets are you know after underperforming severely are starting to bounce back over the course of the last few weeks. Michael, are you confident here that uh, in making the soup of Trumponomics, the, the the recipe has been figured out? In other words, you mentioned the tax reform, prospect for tax cuts, tax reform, regulatory reform, infrastructure spending. Do we do we have the the, the a sense of what the right allocation of ingredients is going to be here, and and how worrisome is it to you if we don't get the balance right? 
Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think we know what the proposals are, um, you know, but there's a bit of a wrinkle called the U.S. Senate. So the legislation does have to clear the U.S. Senate to become law, at least in a permanent fashion, for tax cuts. And, you know, we'll see what can get through. Mm. Uh, the other wrinkle is the Federal Reserve. I mean, Fed Chair Yellen has essentially said this is really not the proper time in the business cycle for a big demand-side fiscal push, meaning anything that looks like it's going to expand the fiscal deficit in a significant well, way, the Fed would likely have to lean against with tighter monetary policy than would otherwise be the case. She's given this message on several occasions. I'm not sure that Congress is hearing it. Michael, give us an update. I have seen more ch- chat in the last 10 days on David Laidler, Newt Vixel. Newt Vixel appeared on the show last week, folks. Newt Vixel, M2, M3, in our circulation of money in reserves. Where are we in the land of David Laidler? Okay. Well, <clears throat> Tom, this is my favorite subject, as you I know. I knew that. <laughs> Um, let's start with uh, let's start with some of the money supply data because Please. it's a little confusing right now. Uh, so the monetary base in the U.S., which the Fed has direct control over, actually has been declining on a year-to-year basis. We're down almost double digits on on the base, and so in order to hold short-term interest rates up, the Fed is having to you know to do some liquidity draining, even though it does not yet have a policy of of shrinking. Yeah, the we balance call that in, in in monetary Newt Vixellian theory. That's called draining the swamp, Mr. Dardo. <laughs> draining the liquidity swamp. Yeah. Um, now, whether that's a problem for the business cycle really depends on you know the nature of, of the velocity of, of money. So one thing we're also observing is that other measures of money are doing okay. So M1, M2, and the like. M2 is Actually, rising nicely. Yeah, and M- M1 is rising nicely. So if you look at the monetary base going back over a long, long period of time, essentially since we've had the Fed, declines are year-to-year are pretty rare, but the ones that have been problematic have also been associated with declines in the broader money stock, M1, M2, and the like. That is not happening now. And critically, if you look at the credit markets and inflation expectations, we yeah. started off the year in a very, you know, very precarious <clears throat> setting, and that's really turned okay. around. So that would fit yeah. with what I said about I, business confidence improving right. earlier. David, to our audience globally, I don't give a damn what Michael Darda just talked about. <laughs> I was just doing a job audition for Darda for Larry Kudlow there at the White know. House. It's the only reason I did it, David. <laughs> and to say Newt Vixerian, which I was pretty impressed with as well here. Michael, here we are at, at the end of 2016, a few days to go until 2017. How how firmly set out is your outlook at this point in terms of all the uncertainty we have here about what policy could look like in the new year? How difficult is it to assemble an outlook for the new year? Well, I think we need to start with the question of, you know, what is, uh, you know, what is growth potential in the U.S. economy? And, you know, that's simply the sum of the trend of productivity and working age population growth. And unfortunately, over the last five or six years, it's been quite weak. Now, there's a lot of optimism that that could turn around with different policy reforms, but, you know, I'm not sure how much traction we're really going to get there. And so, you know, over any extended period of time, your growth rate is really going to be determined by those real forces, productivity and working age population growth. The market seems very focused on the prospect prospects for corporate tax reform and cuts 
and regulatory relief, not really paying much attention to, you know, trade protectionism risks, clampdowns on immigration, those things would not help productive potential and economic efficiency. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, that I've been concerned about, or at least that's in the back of my mind, is how this all settles out um, on a go-forward basis. So I think, unfortunately, we're still going to be looking at growth rates during the, you know, the rest of this business cycle expansion that are low by historical standards, for no other reason because of demographics. Is this a measured Fed... I mean, if nominal GDP is going where you say, and we see the Trump reflation, including Euro 10370 uh, this morning, Michael Darda, if we reached escape velocity on nominal GDP, and is the Trump reflation sustainable? Well, you know, um, Tom, I, I think the Fed is in a much better position now to raise rates several times next year than it was coming into this year. Last year in December, when it raised rates and signaled four more to come, you know, the dot plot was really totally out of kilter with the credit markets and inflation expectations. Now that's completely reversed course. So is that a measured Fed? Yeah, I would say that's a measured Fed. I mean, they want to be able to lift short-term interest rates uh, in a gradual fashion, and the business cycle will dictate whether they're able to do so. But, you know, we're still going to be looking at at growth rates for all overall nominal growth that you know by historical standards are are fairly low so let's just mm-hmm. work with some numbers if growth potential is running at one to two it's really been closer to one but let's yeah, okay. you know, give ourselves some room yeah. one to two and the fed is a two percent inflation target then three to four nominal is really you know all we can look forward to on a sustained basis and in that environment long rates are going to be relatively low and the fed's not going to have a ton of room to no. move short-term interest rates up meaning that okay. three or four percent levels are probably not going to be seen yeah. during this business cycle Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.